Hi ASS203 students, welcome back to lecture week nine. Um, as many of you know, we have decided to spend an additional week in module four, and that means an additional week to stay with the set text a little longer and use this as an opportunity to further discuss and unpack a dense text. Um, but I suppose what I would also like to do um, at the end of today's lecture is talk a little bit about current struggles of the Arawete as colonial government and global forces bear down on their life. And I think what um, this will also then um, allow us to do is transition a little bit into module five, uh, which will now cover weeks 10 and 11. And in module five, what I really hope for is that all the previous learning from the uh, modules beforehand, and that is modules one, two, three, and four, will somehow come together uh, for all of us as we think about implications of this learning uh, for us today, but also implications in terms of um, the current ecological crisis that we are in, and that is um, very much uh, talking about um, this uh, moment of time that, is been that has been termed uh, the Anthropocene, and also um, the ecological crisis in terms of climate change. So all of this um, as a way to kind of think through human, non-human relations, and to think through uh, implications of all our learning from the previous models uh, into a contemporary ecological crisis. Right? So that's where we're heading. But for this week, what I thought we would do is um, stay a little bit longer with the set text, of course. Um, in seminar, I urge you all to unpack um, the, the part, at least in um, the Warren Ponds and Cloud seminars, that we didn't manage to dwell on quite as much, which was um, the whole idea of the person uh, and, and the sort of ethnographic narratives of um, personhood for the Arawete. Um, so in a way, for seminars, I would urge you all to um, revisit the last part of last week's lecture. But what I want to look at this week um, is the analytic concept of personhood and especially the idea of uh, fractal persons um, and use that as an opportunity to uh, understand Viveros de Castro's eventual theorizing of the Arawete material according to something he calls perspectivism and how that's implicated in a concept of becoming or becoming other or other becoming, all of these I think you can use interchangeably and what that means uh, for the method and the purpose of anthropology itself. So in many ways, this week's lecture is uh, quite analytical, it's quite conceptual, it um, sort of proposes a way to think through the ethnographic details of the past two weeks in order to understand um, some of the analytic and conceptual implications for this set text, right? And, and then at the end, again, um, to sort of shift or transition into module five, I'll be looking a little bit at some of the contemporary struggles 
of the Arawete and their way of life today. Okay, let's begin by, in a way, sort of going backwards a little bit. And by backwards, I mean not only in terms of um, where we are in terms of chapters for the set text, but also in terms of what we came across at the start of module three. And by that, I want perhaps as a way to begin to take us back to this sort of general understanding of humanity, of what human persons constitute in relation to another uh, term or another category, and that is of animality, of um, the category of animals. As we all by now know and recall, in evolutionary theory and from approaches to modern science, humans and animals share a material substance. This substance, you know, very much related to carbon chemistry, to organic chemistry, and to biology, refers to the sharing of a certain kind of physicality. Um, and again, in other ways to put it, we could say, referring back to Descola, that this is a perspective presented by the ontology of naturalism. In this ontology, humans and animals share a material substance or base, and that is reducible to the molecular form of carbon um, atoms, but also that, that there's a kind of understanding that this is a physicality that is um, different only by degree, that this physicality in, um, inevitably uh, uh, brings to uh, bear kind of physical decomposition of the material form. However, humans and animals are different from each other because animals are thought to have a conscious soul, whereas human animals do not, right? So in this regard, in terms of an interior uh, or interiority, whether you call it consciousness or soul or mind, humans and animals are different by kind, not by degree. Interestingly, from this perspective of evolutionary theory and modern science, humans are in a way ex-animals in that humans evolved from apes. And this is a very sort of um, clear uh, narrative that comes to us from um, a Darwinian evolutionary theory. However, consider that from another perspective, and that is that of the Arawete, and in terms of Arawete cosmology, animals are the ones who are left behind. And in this regard, this trajectory or this movement might seem similar to that of evolutionary theory, but with one key difference. And the key difference is that for the Arawete, animals are understood as ex-human rather than humans understood as ex-animals, right? And by placing animals as ex-human, what the Arawete propose is an original condition, which was that of humanity. And animals lost this, quote unquote, when they took on animal bodies. Therefore, and this is important and important to understanding the key difference between 
that of evolutionary theory in modern science, namely the ontology of naturalism, and that of the Arawete, which proposes an ontology of animism, animals do not lack a conscious soul. In fact, animals have, as their original condition, which is that of humanity, a kind of continuous interiority with human persons. And if anything, animals lack a human body. So this is really, really key, because when we flip the ontology, and when we deal with a larger conceptual frame that takes not the movement of one to the other in terms of, you know, animals um, becoming human uh, or human, sorry, evolved from animals. And then in another instance, animals as ex-human. What we might see is a similar trajectory, but a very different sort of implication and meaning when we think about the larger sort of ontological concepts and the larger sort of framings that are proposed. For the Arawete, the original condition is humanity. And in fact, the persistent condition is humanity. Animals are different from humans because they have different bodies. They don't lack a conscious soul. They lack a human body, right? So this is a key sort of difference here. Another kind of initial sort of grounding that I'd like us to consider is that of humanity and divinity. And in this regard, we're doing a similar kind of um, experiment or thought experiment. Just as animals were left behind in terms of an Arawete cosmology, so too the Arawete are the forsaken ones. And forsaken how? Because they were left behind by the gods, that is, by the Ma'i gods, the Ma'i Hete. However, what we see here is that when the Arawete die, and we know this from the SP, which is when their E, or vital principle, separates from the Teome'e, which is the physical form, the E is killed and eaten by the cannibal gods. And the Arawete dead, in the process, are transformed to become gods. They become immortal in the transformation of being killed and eaten, and they themselves become gods. Note here, however, that there is a difference with this example of divinity, of humanity and divinity and the relationship between the two with that of Christian understandings of divinity. And I use here Christian just as a point of comparison. It is not um, the only point of comparison available. But in this regard, in Christianity, at death, the redeemed soul becomes immortal and finds a place in paradise. So again, that movement or that trajectory might seem similar, just in the same way that in evolutionary theory, the movement um, of animal to human might seem similar. However, the redeemed Christian soul never becomes a god. It never becomes divine. It is 
given immortality, but does not become God. Right? This is really quite clear, I think, from um, any of the biblical statements in the New Testament. So immortality does not signify uh, divinity or God-like uh, godness. And more importantly, the redeemed soul continues or remains in identity the same soul as it was on earth. Again, this is different from the Arawete situation because in Arawete cosmology, when the Arawete die and become transformed into gods, eventually they forget who they were and they well and truly become gods who then become cannibal gods. Divinity in Christianity constitutes a different kind of being. And therefore, in Christianity, the redeemed soul can never transform into God. And in this way, humanity is always seen in terms of a lack that can never be bridged. Now, what I'm trying to um, demonstrate with these two initial examples and comparisons, on the one hand, between humanity and animality, or humans and animals, and on the other hand, between humanity and divinity, or humans and gods, is that in both cases, using both a comparison of, say, um, Arawete perspectives with that of evolutionary theorists and modern scientists, and then on the other hand, between Arawete cosmology and, a, say, Christian or Judeo-Christian um, perspectives, is that what is being proposed are differences in terms of two kinds, differences by degree and differences by kind. This is not language that will be new to you. You will have come across it all the way from module one onwards. But for the Arawete, and I'm just going to repeat here then, for the Arawete, differences among animals, humans, and divine are understood as differences by degree. There is no categorical division that cannot be crossed and the relationships that pattern those interactions between animal and human, human and divine, allow a process of becoming to always unfold. Now this is really key. It's key not only to our learning in module two about categories, and about how we name and how we um, understand abstractly and conceptually what things go together. Um, but it also relates to this important division in sort of um, a sort of framework of Cartesian dualism or substance dualism as that which cannot even um, can, can, cannot even be sort of collapsed or um, complemented within the human person itself. Because for Descartes, mind and body are mutually exclusive. They, they signal different um, things that cannot be reducible to one. All right? Whereas in the Arawete case, it's not even mind and body that's reducible, but also animals and humans and divine that are reducible and only understood in terms of a difference by degree. In modern cosmology, on the other hand, 
Differences among animals, humans, and divine represent differences by kind. There is a categorical distinction that cannot be crossed, and it cannot be crossed because of the kind of permanent lack that is associated with each kind of being, right? Animals will always lack a, a conscious soul or a kind of mind in the way that humans have. And humans will always lack a kind of divinity, even after uh, and even if they achieve immortality. And in this sort of um, system, we shall call a modern uh, cosmology, what we see is that existence in terms of animals or humans or divine is posited as being rather than becoming. And this is really quite important to appreciate in comparison with the Arawete case, right? For the Arawete, there's nothing inherent in animals or humans or divine that will inhibit the ability to become something else. So it's almost as if we could think of that the potential is always existing within the actual being, right? The potential for divinity already exists in Arawete people when they are living. And that potential is activated at the moment of death. Just as animals are actually and potentially humans, they have a shared consciousness, an interiority that's continuous with humans, and it's really only their bodily form that is different. So in the Arawete system and perspective, the process of becoming is always about to unfold. It's always allowed. And by that sort of understanding, it means that within the person, within the animal itself, there already is that potential for um, the becoming. Does that make sense? There's, there's no sort of idea that humans are humans only, and that is all that they are. Humans means being human, and being human already sort of necessitates a categorical distinction from everything else, every other living thing. There is not that. Instead, if we take the perspective of becoming, we understand that already within each and every Arawete living person, there is the potential not only to become divine, to transform into divinity at the moment of death, but also in the very specific case of the Arawete killer, to, to incorporate the other, which is the enemy other, into oneself even during life. Right? So what we're seeing, again, is the kind of juxtaposition of actuality and, and potentiality of self and other already within the kind of frame or the person of the Arawete human. And that frame is already sort of predicated on a process that is about becoming. It's not ever sort of fixed or certain. On the other hand, when we take human in terms of modern cosmology, what we are conceptually or philosophically posing is an existence that is predicated on being rather than becoming. 
And when you predicate on being, what happens is that you will always lack something. Animals always, being animals, will always lack a conscious soul. Humans being humans will always lack divinity. And so it's really kind of exciting, important to note that these things come out into uh, sort of view or be, they become noticed only when we think about the um, relation of human with non-human, either um, animal or divine. All right. And so these things, I suppose, these observations really only crystallize or appear when we take these comparisons into um, view. And it's these comparisons that are offered by anthropology um, that are, I think, most exciting and most clear. If we let's uh, if we move on, then, then let's do move on to this idea of fractal persons. And again, it's sort of um, just elaborating what I've said um, before. We then understand that for the Arawete, and this is Riveros de Castro writing on page 210, the ambiguity of the concepts of E and Aoe, which is basically the vital principle and that we call the terrestrial specter, reveals that the person is something split or prone to fissioning along various dimensions. This is something akin to what I was already talking about with regard to holding a potential within oneself, right? That as self, you already have the potential other in you. And in that process of becoming through life, one moves towards that, closer and closer towards that potentiality. And so when we about that, we are already thinking of a person as multiply composed, not only in terms of an ethnographic presentation, which is that of the Taowe, the Teome'e, and the E, right, which is the, um, uh, the um, celestial, terrestrial specter, the, the corpse or the body and the vital principle, not only in terms of that, but also in terms of a kind of analytic um, composition. Right? And that analytic composition is that of the self and the other, of the potential to become the other. And in this regard, he says, Viveros de Castro says, such a division or such a fissioning or splitting is not simple. It's not simple in terms of a Cartesian fissioning or a split, because remember there, the Cartesian fissioning was one of substance dualism between mind on the one hand and body on the other for each individual person, right? But this is a different kind of division. This is a different kind of splitting. He says, Arawete dualisms cannot be easily reduced to Cartesian figures. And why is that? Because Arawete dualisms are really more about the actual and potential within each person that always and already signifies a process of becoming. So the warrior killer, when he kills, becomes the enemy by ingesting, by killing and ingesting the enemy, becomes the enemy. And therefore, through this becoming, then also becomes other to the Arawete, even while still living with the group. 
And so here we have a kind of collapse of not only an ethnographic situation where by killing, the warrior killer becomes the enemy, but also an analytic kind of presentation that by killing, the warrior killer, the self becomes the other. And when that happens, we have a situation where the other is already with the Arawete while still living with the group. Normally, and this is for normal Arawete, the living E achieves other becoming only through death, only at the time of death when it is then killed, eaten by the gods and transformed, therefore, into immortality and eventually into gods themselves. But that happens at death and that happens in a different realm. That happens in the celestial tier, remember. It doesn't happen in this world, in this earthly realm, the way it does for the warrior killer. So what these two examples give us, not only in terms of the ethnography, but also in terms of the analysis, is that living with the enemy already occurs for the Arawete in this life. It li they live with the enemy through the warrior killer slash enemy. And that means that they are able, even in this life, or at least certainly for that warrior killer, is able to take on the enemy's point of view, is able to take on the other's point of view in this world. For the normal Arawete, that means taking on the enemy's point of view, which is the God's point of view at the time of death and beyond. And eventually they will forget. But for the Arawete warrior killer, living with the enemy, taking on the enemy's point of view already occurs in this world, right? In this earthly realm. And again, just a reminder for the Arawete, there are two distinct others. There are living enemies and there are the cannibal gods. And the interesting thing is that the Arawete killer is both. They become transformed in the process of eating, killing and eating the enemy, the living enemy other, also then other to the Arawete themselves. And in that sense, they become approximate to the cannibal gods, but they are not the cannibal gods. They are instead Ira Paradi, which is what he calls that being that kind of encapsulates perspective, right? The Arawete killer is that kind of being that personifies perspective in this world. And that is really what is um, sort of uh, the full force of understanding and thinking through what is being suggested here. Now, what is a perspective? Again, I want to make clear that I've been using perspective in um, a different way at the start of this lecture. At the start, I've been using it to sort of signal um, a kind of ontology. Um, but I want to be clear that Viveros de Castro, when he uses this word perspective, does not um, refer to ontology. He does not refer to a discolar kind of way of speaking. Instead, what he means is literally that perspective as a point of view. But what is this point of view? It is a point of view of an 
active or an acting subject. Okay, and just as a kind of preparation to think through this idea of subject and object, just think about how we normally think about actions in the world. A subject does something. And usually a subject does something to an object. Yes? And that object then has something done to it. So there's an active subject and then there's a passive object. But again, what is being thought of here is that when we only think of a subject, an active subject as one thing and an object that's passive as another, we could be viewing this according to a nature slash culture dichotomy, where if we want to take a kind of um, replication of terms, what we're also suggesting according to a nature culture dichotomy is that culture is that acting subject, that active subject. And it's actually nature that is the passive object. And think about that in terms of many ways of um, regarding human environment relations within a certain set of circumstances, right? Mining, for example, where you think about um, humans, and in this uh, case, the active subject or culture, acting on mining the resources, the opals, the diamonds, the petroleum, all of that of the environment, of nature. And there, nature is passive. Nature is just done to. Nature is mined and um, extracted from. Right? So this is kind of a, a, a sort of um, extension of this particular uh, sort of scenario. But what perspectivism or uh, what Viveros de Castro would uh, say on this idea of perspectivism is that it highlights something else. It highlights that human and non-human subjective agents have different perspectives on the world and that this perspective on the world is not according to a fixed idea of what is subject and what is object. All right, because in this other sort of uh, framework, which we understand is not about a nature slash culture dichotomy, but rather that humans and non-humans have the same soul, right, or cultural perspective, and it's only the body um, or nature that's different. When we take that into account, we then understand that the point of view is not necessarily located only in a, a human or cultural acting subject, but that point of view can also be um, taken on by an animal or acting subject or natural acting subject, as it were. That is the key difference here. When we shift our framework from one of a nature culture dichotomy to one of a kind of um, multinatural uh, perspective, which is what he uh, himself, Viveros de Castro, says, right? When that happens, what we're actually proposing is that the world of the acting subject of what acts actually opens up. The point of view is more inclusive so that it's in fact animals also that can take part in a particular act or in a kind of acting. 
right? Um, and I just want to elaborate on this um, a little bit more. Perspectivism, and this again, now we're talking about a theory of perspectives offered by Viveros de Castro, assuming a kind of multi-naturalism frame of um, uh, framing. Perspectivism considers the body in a very different way from the framework of scientific naturalism. The body that you have gives you a particular perspective on an experience of the world. It's the mind or soul that is shared or common. And again, re refer back to that experiment in Valladolid, right, that Levi-Strauss rec recounts about um, the Spanish theologians having one kind of debate and the, uh, and the um, Indians, the Amerindians having another kind of debate. The body is not assumed for the Amerindians. You've got to know what happens, whereas humanity or the mind is uh, assumed. So in this sense then, what we are seeing, and if we recall back to the Yukage hunters, it's that animals and other non-human persons, whatever they may look like to humans, right, because humans have our own bodies and we'll see animals in a certain way, but animals have their own bodies and they'll see humans in, this, in a certain way. They are believed to experience themselves as participating in the behaviors similar or identical to that of the Yukagiris. And therefore, it's culture that is shared, or culture or the mind uh, or soul that is common. Right? It's just the perspective that you have according to your own body is going to give you a certain kind of um, understanding. But we have to assume from perspectivism that the... Um, culture or the humanity is shared, it's just going to look differently um, to other bodies, shall we say. And uh, with that in mind, I'm just going to go back and I'm going to go to that um, uh, quote that I gave you at the end of last week's uh, lecture, and I'm going to read it uh, in its entirety, even though it's quite long. Having been people, animals and other species continue to be people behind reader appearance. This idea is part of an indigenous theory according to which different sorts of persons, human and non-human, animals, spirits, the dead, denizens of other cosmic layers, plants, occasionally even objects and artifacts, apprehend reality from distinct points of view. The way that humans perceive animals and other subjectivities that inhabit the world differs profoundly from the way in which these beings see humans and see themselves. Under normal, quote-unquote, normal conditions, which is our human condition, humans see humans as humans. They see animals as animals, plants as plants. As for spirits, to see these usually invisible beings is a sure sign that conditions are not normal. But on the other hand, animals and spirits see humans as animals as game or prey, to the extent that game animals see humans as spirit or as predator animals. By the same token, animals and spirits see themselves as human. They perceive themselves as or they become anthropomorphic beings when they are in their own houses or villages. And most important, they experience their own habits and characteristics in the form of culture. This is really fascinating here. On the other hand, 
Animals, such as predators and spirits, and I'm repeating here, see humans as animals to the same extent that game animals see humans as spirits or as predator animals, right? What they are experiencing is their own habits and characteristics in the form of culture. Animals see their food as human food. So, in other words, jaguars actually see, if you have a jaguar body, you are seeing blood as maniac beer. Humans, looking at jaguars, because humans have our own body, will see jaguars drinking blood. But the jaguars themselves, with a jaguar body, see the blood as maniac beer. Vultures see the maggots in rotting meat as grilled fish. They see their bodily attributes, such as fur, feathers, claws, and beaks, as bodily decorations or cultural instruments. They see their social system as organized in the same way as human institutions are, with shamans and chiefs and ceremonies and exogamous moieties and whatnot, close quote. Whoa, what is being proposed here is quite incredible. It is that Humans can only see a certain way because we have a human body. In, because of this body, our point of view is that animals are, jaguars are drinking blood, or vultures are eating maggots. But really, if you were a jaguar with a jaguar body, what you would be seeing is that you are drinking maniac beer, not drinking blood. And that if you were a vulture with a vulture body, what you would be seeing yourself as eating is grilled fish and not maggots. That is the implication that's being given here in terms of this theory of perspectivism, right? It really matters what kind of body you have. And humans can only see according to the body that they have. But the implication is that all bodies, all living beings, are actually partaking in this same form of culture, drinking maniac beer and eating grilled fish. All right, so this is a really important aspect um, of perspectivism to keep here. And the other important aspect or implication in the theory of perspectivism is that it entails an exchange of perspectives in two ways. One, the exchange of positions within a framework, right? Self and other. So if I am um, human, it depends whether I am in relation to a tapir or a jaguar. If a tapir, then I am the uh, predator and the tapir is the prey. But if in relation to the jaguar, then I become the prey and the jaguar is the predator. Right, So this exchange of positions is working within a particular kind of framework. But then what is also being suggested is the switching of the framework, depending on the kind of body that you have. You might see the, um, body, the world according to one kind of um, frame or one kind of understanding because of the body that you have. But if you have another kind of body, you're going to see the world in a different way. And in that sense, the implication of the Arawete warrior killer slash enemy is really interesting because the body of the Arawete um, person, killer, takes on the body of the other 
of the enemy other, say the Atharini or the Kayapo. And in that instance, then, you see the world as that other. And that's why the Arawete warrior killer will sing the songs of the other, of the enemy other. Right? Will sometimes take on the name of the enemy other. And that is to indicate or to mark this switching of the framework that is also entailed by perspectivism. This is absolutely interesting, fascinating stuff. And I hope you'll agree with me that what is being also suggested here is that your subject, what is a subject or what can be a subject, and what is an object or what can be an object, is absolutely then opened up and switched around. Okay, this is very, very key. Um, it means that animals can be as much subjects as they are objects. It means that nature, the natural environment, can be as much subject as it is object. And, and that is, um, I think, exciting and, and, and kind of transformative in terms of the way that we think, right? Now, I'm just going to move on very quickly because I wanted to cover some of the things that might come up in later chapters, which are more sort of metaphysical, conceptual chapters of the set text. And one of them is this idea of a cannibal cogito. Because again, remember, we go back to Descartes and to Cartesian dualism. The cogito of Descartes is a thinking subject, right? I think, therefore I am. Or perhaps actually more fully, I doubt, therefore I think, therefore I am. The Cartesian dualism here is that of mind and body. What Viveros de Castro does is he plays on this by calling his Arawete group a cannibal cogito, operating according to a cannibal cogito, which is an eating subject. So perhaps an equivalent Arawete statement is to say, I eat, therefore I am. But eating, what is eating here? It actually means ingesting something else and making it part of oneself. So it entails being eaten by something else and becoming part of something else. So there's no kind of assured and bounded fixed thing in the way that we have with Descartes. By eating and ingesting, what you do is you transform. And so one is already, if with a cannibal cogito of eating, therefore I am, already transforming or becoming something else, just as you would if you were eaten by something else and become part of another. So for the Arawete, this is being eaten by the gods. For the Arawete killer, this is eating the enemy other. For the gods, this is eating the Arawete. You know, so it's all about eating. And here, we, again, it's about the predator-prey relationship. And it's about knowing who is subject and who is object. Because for the Arawete, when they eat the tapir, they are subject to the tapir, who is object. But when they are eaten, when the Arawete is eaten by the gods, the Arawete becomes the object, right? They are being eaten. And it's the gods that are the subject. And in this sort of replication of relationships, the gods are actually final destiny in this process. And so they are, in, in many ways, ultimate subjects because no one eats the gods. That, right? Clear? I hope that is clear. And what this means then, and then this is, again, bringing it out in, in a more general, sort of abstract, conceptual way, is that what Viveros de Castro um, understands the Arawete to be is anti-Narcissus. He says they, are a, they, they embody a kind of 
um, show a kind of anti-narcissistic thinking in this whole idea of becoming other, transforming into other, switching your subject-object positionality. And why is that the case? Because let's just first look at Narcissus. He was, as you, any, any of you will know, a legend in Greek myth. And Narcissus was only interested in his own self. His mirror, which was the body of reflection of water, reflected back on himself. And he was so sort of enamored and uh, sort of uh, in love with his own self, with his own image, that he eventually um, became overcome by it. For Viveros de Castro, what he suggests is that the Arawete are exactly opposite of Narcissus because they are not as much interested in their own self as they are in the process of exchanging perspectives, the process of transforming into another. And by doing so, what they're doing is negating the primacy and absoluteness of the self as the same. So the, the um, Arawate as anti-Narcissus by the very process of exchanging perspectives between self and other, between subject and object, between predator and pay, for example, are negating the primacy and absoluteness of the self as the same. And what Viveros de Castro then argues or suggests is that this could be seen as part of the mission or the intention of the discipline of anthropology. What he argues is that anthropology itself must go beyond its initial and continuing focus on using the other or primitives as a mirror through which we only validate ourselves through our representations of them. And this goes across the board. So if we only use ethnography of the primitives to understand how they relate to um, human environment relations, right, or relate to um, non-human beings, as a way to validate our own system of classification, for example, or as a way to validate and expand um, by ethnoclassification the, the different ways that we could understand how we already uh, classify the world around us, then what we're doing is we're relegating those others, those quote-unquote primitives, to only representations of ourselves, right? They're just variations of how we are. And so this is what he says, by always seeing the same in the other, by thinking that under the mask of the other, it's always just us contemplating ourselves, our way of knowledge, our way of life, right? We end up complacently accepting a shortcut and an interest only in what is of interest to us, which is ourselves. However, for anthropology to go beyond this, for anthropology to then become anti-narcissist in the way that the Arawete are, we have to give up any kind of understanding of ourselves or any kind of absoluteness or primacy of the self in terms of anthropology, right? And in terms of what we think are important, what we would understand the world to be, we have to give up, for example, the dichotomy of nature and culture. And instead, what we would then do is a kind of anthropology where when we see the other, what comes back, what returns to us is an image in which we are unrecognizable to ourselves since every experience of another culture 
offers us an occasion to engage in experimentation of our own. And far more than an imaginary variance or, you know, a kind of fictional variance, such a thing is putting into variation of our own imagination, close quote. So the intention then of anti-narcissus in terms of the discipline of anthropology is that the styles of thought proper to the collectives that we study are in fact the motor force of anthropology, close quote. We should not be going out into any kind of, you know, quote unquote primitive area already with our understanding of nature and culture and what a human person is and how we categorize things and then seek only to find what is um, a representation of this particular way of thinking amongst others, but rather we have to take them seriously. We have to take seriously the fact that they think by eating and killing another, the transformation occurs. And therefore, it's not only about being humans, about becoming God, right? All of these things are then taken up seriously and becomes the motor force of anthropology as a way to put into variation our own imagination about, for example, human-non-human relations. And what we do then by fully embracing a kind of anti-narcissistic perspective or approach is that this is necessarily a perspectival endeavor. This necessarily changes the framework itself. Um, this is the framework that I referred to on this slide where we talk about the switching of the framework so that we are then able to kind of, as anthropologists, as a, as a discipline, able to take on the whole idea of um, seeing like a jaguar or seeing like a vulture, right? That's the kind of shifting or switching of the framework that is entailed. So finally, then, for Viveros de Castro, the question of anti-narcissus, he says, is thus epistemological, meaning political. If we are all more or less agreed that anthropology, even if colonialism, okay, we'll acknowledge that, was one of its historical a priority, a priori, is today nearing the end of its karmic cycle, then we should also accept that the time has come to radicalize the reconstitution of the discipline by forcing the process to its completion. And anthropology is then ready to fully assume its new mission of being the theory and practice of the permanent decolonization of thought, close quote. So this is what Viveros Castro then suggests from a long way now from the set text and its ethnography um, to then proposing a, a theory, an approach of perspectivism, and then linking that to a kind, through a kind of anti-narcissistic um, approach um, or analysis to a kind of new mission for anthropology as a discipline. Don't let's look at the world according to things that we already know and just see in the world around us, just more multiplications of the same. But rather, if we take seriously the very difference of other groups of people, and we take very seriously the differences in how they relate with other beings, in how they constitute themselves as human beings, then what it is, is that we're able to then recognize that what we think we know, we really don't know. And there is something that comes back to us that's not recognizable as something that we think is human. And there, we say, then, 
is the start of something different. And that start of something different is by no means complete, but it's the beginning, is this decolonization of thought, of thinking. I thought that this particular image um, was a, a, quite a good one in terms of thinking about anti-narcissus. All right, in the last few minutes, I'm just going to go through a couple of slides. Again, this is just to um, uh, give us a way to transition into Module 5 next week. But there are certain horrible facts about colonization, about what uh, was done when the first European colonizers arrived in the Amazon, and that it's estimated in the 1500s there were probably about 11 million indigenous Indians living in approximately 2,000 tribes. Within 100 years, that is, by the 1600s, estimates are that 90% of that population was wiped out by diseases such as influenza, measles, and smallpox. In the next couple of hundred years after that, the indigenous Indians that did survive would be enslaved and forced to work in rubber, sugar, and coffee plantations. So in Brazil alone, atrocities towards indigenous people continued up to even the 1960s and 70s, one would say even to this day in different ways. And one report actually detailed, um, had 7,000 pages of details in terms of murder, land theft, and enslavement. Um, in short, the history of colonization in the Amazon has been atrocious on all fronts and in all possible ways. Arawete in present time, um, and this is just looking around um, you know, data from 2010, um, approximate about 400 people and now they live in this uh, Funai post. So, you know, what we noted or what Viveros de Castro noted as a kind of dispersed um, form of living is now much more focused and communal. Um, and it's focused around this post of Ipishuna, um, which is beside the middle Shingu River in the Brazilian state of Pará. In the four decades since contact in 1976, Aspects of Arawete life have changed, and we can already read this uh, from the ethnography that Viveros de Castro presents, you know, the guns, the kerosene, the toothpaste, um, and all of this um, we can see also in terms of images uh, that are, you know, you can find of, of more contemporary um, Arawete life. What is being suggested is that um, the Arawete are undergoing a process that some social scientists term ethnocide. And ethnocide here is um, referring to um, not the loss of the lives of people themselves, but to the loss of their culture, of their food, of their language, of their traditions, and possibly also of their cosmology, of their gods, and of their um, alternative imaginations. All right, so all of this is going on at present. And I give a link at the bottom of this slide um, on a kind of um, photo essay, actually, of a, a photographer uh, living among the Arawete. The major threats to their way of life now are unequivocally um, presented by the mining and logging companies and also by the damming of the Shingu River. Um, what we have um, are things along the lines of resource extraction, and so I, I think I mentioned in um, a, a map that I presented in week eight or seven uh, on the Belo Monte mine, and that's really an upper 
um, part of the Xingu River. Um, it is going to it is the fourth largest dam in the world. It's already completed uh, the construction of, um, and that's also owned um, by the same company of Bello. Uh, there's a gold mine that is um, the largest in South America, also in some proximity uh, to the Arawete. It's ongoing oil and gas extraction that causes deforestation, soil and water pollution, and most importantly, loss of species biodiversity. Think about all those species that we read about in chapter um, three or four uh, that talked about how, how and what the Arawete ate. You know, I mean, all of these are diminishing by the day in the Amazon. Um, logging continues. Uh, these large mining um, projects are mostly um, owned by large large companies, but they're also increasingly and actually most worryingly for the Arawete, sort of small to mid-level activities. Um, and this has to do with logging and cattle ranching. And both of these are in many ways far worse to Arawete um, environment, but also to their um, lives. Uh, because these illegal loggers and cattle ranchers tend to be sort of local and they tend to, to um, uh, actually kill people who protest. Um, these large mines are a little bit sort of more faceless and a little bit sort of um, larger scale. Um, but in many, in many respects, the small to mid-level activities of logging and cattle ranching, and because there's so many of them as well, um, uh, present a, a sort of collectively greater threat to Arawete existence. Um, it is actually on this very um, somber note that I will end today's lecture. Um, and we will pick up on some of these in uh, module five, of course, in, uh, next week. Um, the last slide is really just to remind you that the journal assignment is due at the end of this week um, on Sunday. And uh, I've already posted uh, the uh, video link. You can see it there. Review it if you want. Otherwise, um, I look forward, we all look forward to reading through um, the journals that you submit. And I hope that uh, you will continue to think on some of the um, larger ramifications of this set text um, and on really the larger ramifications of uh, anthropology as a discipline um, as a result of today's lecture. Thank you.